what if the things that we see uh, as our greatest spiritual accomplishments in life, what if God sees those things as our least admirable qualities? What are the things that we get the most excited about spiritually? The things that get us excited, like I was able to avoid that temptation. I, I really wanted to cuss that person out and I, and I didn't do it. Um, what if those things that we think are really great spiritual accomplishments, um, God looks at and goes, eh, eh, that's okay. It's not great. When we look at the, the whole of Scripture, when we take the Bible and we look at it kind of cover to cover, what you begin to see is that the greatest spiritual victories are not about vanquishing the enemy. They're not about having some great spiritual victory over the enemy or accomplishing some great temptation, avoiding that or... or, or, or there's all these spiritual things we think, oh, they're so great. And, and what we see in the Bible is that, is that it's not about vanquishing the enemy because God has already done that. Like that greatest thing, that biggest thing, having victory over Satan, that's already been accomplished. Nothing else could, could reach that. And so our greatest victories happen when we offer allegiance to King Jesus. Our greatest spiritual victories are not in accomplishing these things that we think are super important. They're in just every day trusting Jesus to get us through. When we die to ourselves in order to live fully for him, those are the things that get God excited spiritually in, in our lives. Not the great accomplishments, but the everyday little things. And, and it occurred to me as I was thinking about that and kind of processing that this week, that the act of, of baptism, I mentioned that a couple weeks ago, the act of baptism is the place where kind of all of this culminates in, in that one moment. It's, it's where our greatest spiritual victory actually is accomplished. It's where that greatest spiritual victory is most clearly seen in our lives, and it's the most humble thing we do as followers of Jesus. And I think it's because in the act of baptism, we really do nothing. When we, when we give our lives to Jesus and we go through that act of baptism, we really do nothing. It's done to us. It's done in us. It's done through us, but it's not that we have accomplished anything. And so in the end, God has to get the glory for that because we simply offered ourselves in obedience to him in the act of baptism. And then he did all the rest. And, and I just, I think that's this really cool picture of the way God looks at us and he sees the things that we accomplish, or our spiritual accomplishments in our lives. And we think this, this thing, this act of baptism in which we're not, we're not conquering any spiritual giants, we're not doing any great things, we're not out on the mission field and bringing tons of people to Jesus, and yet this, this moment where we really do nothing except 
offer ourselves to God in it, it is the moment that we're told heaven celebrates. Not all the other stuff. When we read the stories of great men and women in the Bible, we quickly discover that the things we consider to be our greatest strengths can actually hinder God's story, if that were possible. But through our weakness, God is able to write a masterpiece. As you go back through scripture in the Old Testament and you look at these characters who we think did great things and accomplished great things, their greatest victories didn't come on the battlefield. They came when they simply surrendered to God, when their weaknesses were the strongest in their lives. We see God working at an incredible level. And so what we're gonna look at today um, in scripture comes pretty early in the life or the ministry of Jesus, let's say that. So Jesus lived about 33 and a half years, give or take a few months, I suppose. Um, and, and we're told like, we talk about his birth a lot at Christmas, right? And there's some information about the birth of, of Jesus. It's kind of neat to look at that. And then we're given a little bit of a snippet of his life when he was 14 and, and he went missing from his mom and dad. He was found in the temple with the priests and the religious leaders. And then it's silent about Jesus' life for 16 years until he's 30 and he goes to a wedding and he performs his first miracle and then he kind of publicly begins to talk about, hey, I'm, I'm the one, I'm the promised one that, that God said would come. And so Jesus began sharing about who he was as the son of God at about 30. And at 33 and a half, he goes to the cross and, and dies. So three and a half years of ministry. And in that short time, Jesus made such an impact on the world that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about what he did in three and a half years of ministry. But that's pretty crazy. Because I think we look at the Bible and we, we kind of like, oh yeah, it's this huge story and it happened over thousands of years and whatever. But the whole New Testament is, is really based on and written on three and a half years of what Jesus accomplished. Imagine if you were talked about 2,000 years from now because of what you accomplished in three and a half years. That's kind of an amazing thought. Jesus had been preaching and teaching only for a short time when the story that we're gonna look at in Luke 10 happens. Jesus gathers together, he's got all of these followers and, and he and he calls the text that is 70, 72, somewhere like that. He called a group of people together and he broke them off into pairs and he sent them out. The text says that they, they went out kind of ahead of him. So um, he was gonna go through the region and he was gonna begin preaching and teaching and whatever. And so he sent these people out kind of ahead of him to get things ready. They were, they were the, uh, the pre-launch team. They showed up and they gave people some instruction and they talked about what was gonna, what was gonna happen. And so Jesus was sending them out to tell people about the, that the kingdom of God had come and then to prove that the kingdom of God was coming uh, by miracles that were performed in his name, particularly, he says, healing people. And so we're gonna to start um, today to look at the power of thanksgiving by looking at how Jesus 
prepared those 70 or 72 people to go out and, and do what he wanted them to do. So we're gonna be in uh, Luke chapter 10 and the, uh, verses three through 11. Here's what it says. Uh, Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no, like, like right off the bat, you're like, mm -hmm. do I want to do this or no? <laughs> this sound, like you're not starting out real good. Usually people save the worst stuff for the end, Jesus, not right at the beginning. Uh, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of, of wolves. Um, I was just having a conversation out in the lobby uh, with Jeff, actually. Uh, we were talking about um, some things, and I, I said, uh, it's interesting that the Bible calls us sheep all the time. The Bible refers to us as sheep. We're sheep without a shepherd. Uh, lots of things about sheep. Um, and I was thinking this week, that sheep have no natural, uh, they have enemies, but they have no natural offense or defense, right? Sheep are just kind of out in the field, uh, uh, then they die, and and it's really like, you, I hear stories. I've never raised sheep, so I don't, I don't know. We had talked to some of the 4-H girls. Uh, you, guys, you guys raised sheep before? No, okay. Uh, well, I've heard that, that if a wolf comes in or a predator comes into a, a flock of sheep um, and like grabs one and eats it, the rest of them just go, oh, see you, Steve. <laughs> like they just keep eating. They don't run away. They don't, they're just like, eh, okay, whatever. Uh, so anyway, this is not a bit, oh, I know where I was going with that. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Jeff. Uh, we're called sheep like the 2023 Carolina Panthers. We have no offense or defense. Okay, I don't, we don't have any Panthers fans here. Uh, so I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, if people of peace are there, then your peace will rest upon them. If not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, then eat what's set before you. Heal the sick in that town and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now that's the only line in Jesus' instructions that has to do with what the disciples are actually to do for the other people. Everything else he's talked about is about how they're to behave in relation to other people. Here he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go tell them that the kingdom of God is near and I want you to heal the sick. Um, but whenever you enter a town, and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. So these are Jesus' instructions. When my kids were still at home, um, and, uh, and, and they, were, they were younger, high school, whatever, and they began, uh, they got into that stage where they started going out with friends, or they could drive, and they could go places on their own. I, I had this uh, thing that I said uh, whenever they were about ready to leave the house. Uh, I said, don't do anything stupid. Um, and I have to just confess, since all my kids are here today, I have to confess, that was a really stupid thing for me to say. I thought I was super clever, you know, as a dad, as we all do as dads. We think everything we do is amazing. Uh, 
But I thought that was really clever. And I've thought about it. I've thought about it since then, you know, for the last 20 years or something. And I'm like, that was, that was a really stupid thing to say. Uh, because what I should have said is, don't do anything dangerous. Because doing stupid things is part of being a kid, right? Because <laughs> you, I, look, you did stupid things when you were a kid. And I absolutely did stupid things when I was a kid. And Jeff just confessed all the stupid things he did when he was a kid in the communion talk. We all did stupid things, but the idea is don't do stupid things that are gonna injure you or somebody else. Like that kind of idea. When we look at what Jesus says to, to his disciples, it really is a whole lot more than just these rules or instructions for going out and doing what he wants them to do. Like we read this list and we're like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. Don't, don't take extra money or sandals or a knapsack. We don't, we don't understand that. We go to a house, stay there all the time. Don't go from house to house. We don't really understand those rules because we're very far removed from Eastern culture uh, 2,000 years ago. But there is a whole lot of stuff that Jesus packs in to these instructions that we often miss. And we don't have time to like really dive into all this stuff today, but it's a lot more than just this set of instructions. Jesus was trying to help the disciples learn to trust God. And so what he tells them in that list of instructions is he tells them to trust God spiritually. He's like, you're gonna, you're gonna face attacks from the enemy and you need to know that going in, but you also need to gonna learn to trust God in the middle of that. Like God's gonna protect you. God's gonna be the one around you. And you also need to trust God for the physical things that you need. Taking very few personal items mean they had to trust God to provide as they went on the journey for their needs and that God would provide for their needs through the kindness and generosity of others. So Jesus was trying to help the disciples learn to trust God spiritually with the attacks, to trust God for provision for the things that they needed. He wanted them to learn to trust the story that God was writing for them. He said, look, don't go to a house and then find a better house to go to and then find a better house to go to. Like trust the story God is writing, that the person who comes to you and invites you into their home, that that's the place God wants you to stay because you're gonna be able to learn something. You're gonna be able to grow by staying with them. Jesus wanted them to learn to be humble, to receive with thankfulness excuse me, and grace what they were offered instead of trying to get more. Because what would happen is they might go into a town as they begin to heal people and tell them that the kingdom of God was coming, a wealthier person might come along and say, hey, look, instead of staying in that crummy uh, Motel 6, why don't you come to my house? What, this is a Hilton over here. This is a Garden Inn or something. It's a lot better. And so the disciples might be tempted to use the thing that God had given them to do by healing people and telling them about the kingdom to benefit themselves. There's a lot more going on here. So God says, or Jesus says, trust God, heal the sick, preach the kingdom. That's really what Jesus said to them. All that list of instructions, that's really what it boils down to. But look what happens when they return in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So question, 
Where in Jesus' list of instructions did he tell them to have anything to do with demons? It's not there. He said, heal the sick and tell them that the kingdom of God is coming. There's nothing in there about demons. What the disciples did was not wrong. They were simply doing whatever they felt the Holy Spirit was leading them to do in the moment. What they did was not wrong. Casting out demons, freeing people from that bondage and slavery, that's a good thing. In fact, that's what Jesus was supposed to do. It said that the Messiah would come and he would free those in bondage. This was all good stuff. And so we have to go, this doesn't make any sense. Jesus didn't tell them to do that, but they're excited about doing that. And so there must be something more to the story. There's something that we're missing in here because these are opposite things. These are obvious things that are going on. So we have to look at what Jesus says next to begin to get a sense of what the disciples were excited about and, and why they were excited about casting out demons. Because I think the disciples believed that this act of casting out demons or having the demons obey them, I think they thought that was a really spiritually impressive ability. I think they came back to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, even the demons listen to us in your name because they thought that like bumped them up to a next level. Like they just, oh, Jesus, like we're it now. We, we've, we've made it. We've made it. We're just like you. We're casting out demons just like, like you can. I think they thought Jesus would be proud of them for doing this thing. Like they were bragging because they thought they were gonna get brownie points. But look at what Jesus says to them in the next couple of verses. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, it feels to me like there's a little bit of Jesus kind of putting the disciples in their place to some extent. He's like, he's like oh, the demons listen to you? Oh, that's, that's cool. I conquered Satan. <laughs> I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Like, I'm the one who, who did that. You think the demons listening to you is, is pretty neat? Oh, that's great. But the only reason the demons are listening to you is because of what I've already done. Now, I, 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 don't, think, um, I, I don't think Jesus has a passive aggressive bone in his body. I don't think he played that game. I, I, think, I think he said what, what he meant. I, I think he said it directly, but I think he said it kindly. Uh, and so I don't think he was, he, I don't think there was like this passive aggressive thing here with the disciples, but I, but I think he was trying to say, look, um, I was victorious over Satan and I have given you a little bit of that power, even over the enemy so that nothing can hurt you because I'm protecting you. I've given you this job or this role because of what I've Done. Like you have power because I have power. And I've extended my power, my victory, my strength. I've given that to you. I think Jesus is trying to remind his disciples that whatever they're able to do spiritually, they're able to do because of what Jesus has already done. 
because he won the victory, they get to have victory. It was all due to the fact that Jesus had already secured victory over the enemy. And so in everything that Jesus does, and we look at those three and a half years of ministry and his conversations with the disciples, all the things he says and all the things that he is, is doing, he is constantly trying to direct the disciples and I think us to what is really important. Everything's a lesson. Everything for Jesus is a teachable moment. And so let's look at verse 20. He says, nevertheless, so he says, look, I've, I conquered Satan. I've given you this power so that um, you won't be harmed by these things. But even though all of that's true, do not rejoice in those things. Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, what the disciples seemed, what to the disciples seemed like a huge deal, the, the demons listening to them. That was not a normal thing. And we remember, what did the disciples do before they followed Jesus? Well, there were a bunch of fishermen. There was a traitor to the Jewish people, a tax collector. There was a, a, a zealot, um, meaning he was part of the Jewish freedom fighters. So he was fighting against Rome, bloody, bloodthirsty guy. Uh, and he, Jesus brought all these guys together. They were really nobodies spiritually or in the Jewish nation. And so having demons listen to them and obey them, that was a huge, huge deal for them. It, it, but their authority over demons was simply a byproduct of their allegiance to Jesus. Like, this is what happens, Jesus is saying. This is what happens when you're connected to me. Because I already won the victory. That victory is extended to you, and so you can have victory as well. Because Jesus had power over the enemy, they had power over the enemy. But what Jesus thinks should be more important to them is that their names are written in heaven, meaning God saw them as a part of his family that God had welcomed them into the kingdom of God. And so once again, we see Jesus pointing to this truth that we've kind of looked at before that is not about what you accomplish in the kingdom. It's about you being a part of the kingdom. It's not about what you accomplish in the kingdom or for God. It's about being a part of the kingdom. I shared this thought at the end of the last um, message series that we did, that you can't earn your way into heaven any more than you can earn God's love or acceptance by doing the right things or being sinless. Like we, like we think when we mess up, well, I'll do better. I'll, I'll, I'll accomplish that thing. I'll overcome that temptation or that sin. And, and if I can just be sinless, then God will love me and he'll bless me and he'll give me the things that I want. And we talked in the last series about how that is not the way it works. Like God loves you even though those other things happen. And we will never be sinless. We will never be able to do everything right so that God will say, oh man, look at you, you're awesome. You're doing everything great. Why don't you come and be a part of heaven? That's not the way, it's not the way it works. 
We don't earn God's love or acceptance by doing all the right things. We can't earn anything from God. We just receive everything from God. As far as God's concerned, it's a way bigger deal that you are counted in his kingdom than that you conquer the enemy. It's a way bigger deal to God that you are accounted as a part of his kingdom than that you conquer the enemy. And it seems so odd to us, I think because we are still caught up in the economy of Egypt. Um, Israel was slaves in Egypt for 250 years. Their entire worth as not just a group of people, but as individuals was directly tied to what they could produce, how many bricks they could could make, how high they could build the walls, how many bricks they could make. That was their life's worth. And when you couldn't make bricks anymore, when your production dropped off, your worth, your value dropped off as well. And the truth is, that's the way we see things in this country and every country of the world. We are looked at based on what we can produce. And when we stop being able to produce what is expected, then our worth begins to drop off. That's how we're looked at. That's the economy of Egypt. We, we produce, then we have worth. When we stop producing, our value goes down. And we want to come to God because of that with a list of reasons why he should let us into heaven. Look what I've accomplished for you, God. I go to church, I give, I serve, I help that person. I gave some money to that homeless guy. I did whatever. We wanna come to God with this list of things and reasons why we think he should bless us. God, you should make sure that I have enough money for rent this week because I did this or that. Or when we feel like we don't have enough or there's things that aren't working right, what do we do? We go, I haven't been to church in a while. Maybe I'll go back to church. And if I go back to church, then and maybe God will notice me. Maybe he'll recognize me and maybe he'll bless me. Maybe he'll give me the thing that I think I need. And so we're constantly trying to motivate God to bless us and to give us what we think we need. But none of that gets us into heaven. None of that earns us a seat at his table. It's all about what we receive through Jesus, not what we earn from the good, good works that we do. And so God p- planned it this way. So I wanna look at the prayer of Jesus. I, I told you last week that in this series, we were gonna look at three different times where Jesus used the phrase, I thank you, God or Father, um, like that. And it's direct places where God actually, or Jesus is actually recorded praying this prayer, and we get to see what Jesus actually was thanking God for. It doesn't just say Jesus gave thanks. It says, here's what Jesus thanked God for. Let's look at what he thanks God for in Luke 10, 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children. For such was your gracious will, or your translation may say, was your good pleasure or purpose. 
That the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. It's a kingdom where Jesus was crowned on a cross, not a throne. A kingdom where the king dies for his subjects instead of the other way around. A kingdom where if you wanna be first in the kingdom, you wanna be top of the class, you wanna be teacher's pet, you wanna be number one, you wanna be the best, you have to become the least. It's a kingdom where the best seats in the house aren't given to those people who earned them by good works. They're given through grace. And so we find this interesting moment where Jesus thanks his father for this upside down kingdom. He sent the disciples out ahead of him. It's their first like ministry gig. And he says, go out and heal the sick and tell them that the kingdom of God has come near, that the Messiah has come, that it's all beginning to happen. All these things that you've been waiting for thousands of years for are beginning to happen. And the disciples come back and they don't talk about healing and they don't talk about the kingdom. They talk about how they were able to do this incredible thing. Even the demons listen to us. And then Jesus thanks his father, not that they were able to accomplish these great spiritual things, but for this upside down kingdom where God has hidden the crazy nature of his plan from the wise and the, the learned, those who are educated. And he's revealed it to the simple. And that not like an offensive simple, like that's not a slam. He's saying, you are not educated in the Torah and all the things as all the other wise and spiritually understanding people are. It's the nature of this kingdom that the, that the educated, the religious elite missed Jesus because they didn't, Jesus didn't fit the mold that they thought he should. I read something interesting um, the last couple of weeks that the, that the Jewish people actually believed there might be two messiahs. There might be the messiah that would come and would rule in Jerusalem, on a throne, the kingdom. And he would be the king, Messiah. But then because there's all of this stuff in the Old Testament about this Messiah that would come and would suffer and be killed and die for the people, they thought, well, you can't be a king and die at the same time. So in many of the Jewish scholars, the religious leaders' minds, there really were gonna be two Messiahs, one who would rule and one who would die. That was the only way they were able to figure it out. And so Jesus comes and he doesn't fit the mold. And, and eventually there's this moment which makes all kinds of sense now where Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin and, and the high priest says that it would be better for Jesus to die, for one man to die for the nation than the whole nation to die. And you begin to go, well, maybe the religious leaders believed that this Jesus was the Messiah who should die, not the one who should reign. And you know, what did Jesus say to, to Pilate? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's an upside down kingdom. <laughs> if my kingdom were of this world, then my followers would come and they would fight for me and they would be victorious. But as it is, I'm gonna offer myself in their place. This is why Jesus says, don't celebrate what you accomplish. Celebrate that you're accepted. 
You see, too often, I think, in our lives, we celebrate what we've done instead of what God has done for us. We feel spiritual when we conquer that temptation, when we pray for a stranger, when we give to somebody in need, when we read our Bibles, when we make it to church three out of four Sundays. God gets excited, though, when we trust him, when we're able to rest in him instead of trying to earn something from him. We surrender our will to his will. When we obey, those are the things that get God excited and, and perhaps I was thinking the, the best picture of this is seen in the act of baptism. It's a strange thing getting dunked under the water. Like it wouldn't make sense in any other, in any other situation in our lives. And really, if, if you were in church, uh, if you were in any other situation and somebody said, hey, to be a part of this group, we got to dunk you under the water, you'd go, no thanks. Because <laughs> it's weird. It doesn't make any sense. How can getting dunked under the water connect me to some spiritual thing that gives me eternal life and forgives me? Like, I, don't, I don't understand how these two things are related. But what we see in the act of baptism is what we talked about last week. And it's what we really are learning about God today. Baptism isn't about what we do, but what we allow God to do in us. We don't do anything in baptism except allow it to happen. Like someone else dunks us in the water. Scripture tells us, 1 Peter tells us that the baptism works because Jesus died and rose from the grave. So we don't do anything. Getting dunked under the water doesn't have anything to do with what we've accomplished. It's because of what Jesus did that brings us to that point. And then when we're brought up out of the water, we're forgiven and we're new and the angels celebrate as God welcomes us into the kingdom. And that is not said about anything else that we do in our spiritual lives. Just like the disciples, we wanna to come to God and we go, hey God, the demons listened to us and I accomplished this temptation and I overcame this and I was nice to that person who was mean to me. Don't you love me? And, and Jesus is like, look, it's not about what you do. It's about being a part of this kingdom. It's this completely upside down thing that we would be welcomed into the kingdom of God through an act of submission, not an act of accomplishment. That we could come to God simply because we surrender to him and instead of accomplishing some great feat for him. But that's the thing about the whole spiritual journey that we have. God wants us to rest in what he's already done. Our job isn't to earn our way into heaven, but to receive that as a gift and then let that gift spill out of us to others. The power of thanksgiving is in acknowledging what God has done for us, not what we've done for him tend to get that backwards because 
Thanksgiving this week, we're gonna be thinking about that and we're gonna be thanking God about things. And we're gonna have the tendency to thank God for all the good things that we have or the things that we've been able to accomplish. But this week, I wanna challenge you to be thankful that you're accepted. That the God of the universe has welcomed you into his family, not because of what you do, not because of what you have done, not because of what you will do, but because of what he's already done for you. Thank God for his grace in not counting your sin against you. Thank God for his patience when you fail. Thank God that his love never ends. Thank God for mercy when you try to make things about you instead of about him. Thank God for his plan of salvation through Jesus, knowing that you'd never be able to earn your way into his family. Those are the things that are important to God, not the things that we think we've accomplished and make us spiritual giants. And if you've never been baptized, if you've never humbly accepted the gift of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, then I want you to consider taking that step and receiving a place in the kingdom through allegiance to King Jesus. You can do that by going to reallifecc.us on your mobile device and clicking that icon in the bottom right-hand corner and then clicking the link that says, I'm ready. And then we'll get a notification that you're doing that and we'll be in contact with you. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to have our first baptisms uh, here in this building sometime in December before the end of the year. Maybe it's time for you to be a part of the group that comes to Jesus, not because of all the things you've done. You're not kept out because of all the things you've done, but because you've been willing to surrender and submit to what God has asked you to do. That's how we come to Jesus. That's how we get to be first in the kingdom, by surrendering to him. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us. And thank you for this upside down kingdom that is not based on the certain level of things that we have to do. We can't come to you and go, well, I was a preacher or I served or I gave or I helped this little old lady across the street. None of that earns us a place in heaven. We simply come to you and say, God, like we talked about last week, God, I am a sinner. There's no way that I can earn salvation, but I thank you for it in Jesus. It keeps us humble. And so help us, God, this week to be thankful for what you have already done and that we're counted a part of your family. In Jesus' name.